It's challenging to put down fixed numbers, but the early modern European witch trials resulted in the deaths of 40 to 50,000 people over the course of approximately 300 years. Most of these individuals were women and elderly. When we think about that time span in mortality rate, this seems strangely inconsequential compared to the global death toll from COVID-19. As of July 3rd, over 520,000 people have died in just six months. And yet, comparing death counts strips the dead of their individuality, which they maintained in life. To best honor the dead, we need to respect the unique individuality of each of those who have gone before us. Every person killed during the early modern witch trials had hopes, dreams, fears, and many had families and friends however marginalized they were within their communities. It's unclear when the global death toll from COVID-19 will slow, or if that will only happen with a vaccine and herd immunity. Public health policies will help curb the death toll in the meantime, and our individual efforts to shield our communities from contagion will be a part of our generation's legacy. But why exactly did the early modern witch trials end? This was a gradual process, to be sure, but end they did. Um, didn't they? Dr. Marion Gibson is professor of Renaissance and Magical Literatures at the University of Exeter. It's really difficult to understand why witches stop being prosecuted. It's almost easier to think about why they're not still being prosecuted in the societies where they're not. Clearly around the world, people are still being prosecuted for witchcraft and, and killed, lynched, exiled, etc. Dr. Ronald Hutton is professor of history at the University of Bristol. There are two reasons why witch hunting ends all over Europe. And the first is that uh, it's an experiment. You take on this idea of a satanic conspiracy, you try hunting witches in response, and you see what happens. And the answer is that nothing much happens. Communities that hunt witches, and only some of them do, don't have better weather, better health, or uh, a better track record in general than those that don't. On the contrary, they're often decimated, divided, and traumatized. Dr. Victoria Carr is an independent scholar researching witchcraft beliefs in early modern England and Scotland. People were still suffering, even after you've killed a whole village full of witches. So you start to question whether this is actually working, whether these people are witches. There was a lot of increased skepticism. Skepticism was getting a lot more popular. So you've had the scientific revolution taking off. You get the same in the Enlightenment in Scotland. It's just sort of like all these great thinkers and just really shaping our own modern world today. And yet they were just burning a witch. It's such a strange kind of disconnect between kind of popular belief and how people kind of above really were starting to view the world around them. Marion Gibson again. It could have happened for a variety of reasons. One of them was to do with the growth of scientific understanding of the world. 
Um, so some, clearly some leading figures in society start to believe in different kinds of causation. Not everything is about God, not everything is about providence. Some things might be to do with natural forces, some things might have medical explanations. So some people are looking, if you like, to wind down witchcraft belief as part of winding down witch, religious belief as well on top of that. Ronald Hutton. And the other way of making it credible is if pretty well an entire community witnesses against the accused. And just the mounting quality of circumstantial evidence. Uh, she cursed me, my child died. She cursed me, my child died too. Can seem persuasive. But an awful lot of theologians and lawyers remain very unhappy about this. And as the years pass, their number increases. So witch hunting actually dies out initially because of the problem of evidence before people start disbelieving in witches. Marion Gibson. It seems also to do with changes in legal procedures and, and in legalities and in ways in which there are more and more laws and there's more and more regulation. And the people in charge of society have a tighter grip on society in various ways. And it was in their interest not to have people going around accusing each other of witchcraft constantly because they themselves had come to believe less in it. Ronald Hutton. But also, uh, God just seems to be getting kinder in the late 17th century. The threat from Islam is halted when the Turks are beaten back from the 1680s. It recedes very fast. Bubonic plague begins to vanish from Europe from the mid-17th century. And even the weather gets better from the mid-17th century, removing the risk of famine. But magic was still regarded as something that was, if you're religious, blasphemous. And if you're not religious, seen as grubby, superstitious and antisocial. The main change was simply that the power of uh, Christianity to guide people's actions had weakened quite a bit. So magic got caught between the rock of traditional Christian hostility and the new hard place of a scientific rationalism that indicated that it shouldn't work anyway. While the pan-European epidemic of witch trials may have petered out, belief in magic and witchcraft was another matter entirely. Even today, if you flip to the back of most newspapers, you'll still find your astrological horoscope. And astrology is a magical science that's likely over 4,000 years old. Magical beliefs are still with us today. So how did our popular understanding of the threat of diabolic witchcraft shift? Professor Owen Davies is a member of the History Department at the University of Hertfordshire. Is we need to tease apart the trials from the belief and fear in witchcraft. And I think too often the witch trials equals the totality of witchcraft belief, where of course people believing in witches and fearing witches before the witch trials, and there were many, many people, majority of people, who continued to fear witches after the, the laws against witchcraft were rescinded. So, to understand witchcraft as distinct from the witch trials, we really need to look in a much longer time frame. Prior to that, how would you deal with witches in the, in the medieval period? You'd resort to magic yourself. With the rise of the laws against witches, you have a new alternative, the courts. The authorities are going to help you with your witches. When the laws disappear, you're back on your own again. 
We get people in the 1850s who are going to a local magistrate saying, this witch has bewitched my cows. What are you doing about it? She should be executed. They know there are witches out there. They know they continue to do harm. Um, surely the authorities are on their side. And they're shocked when the soldiers say, you shouldn't believe in that superstitious nonsense. And I think when we look into the 18th and 19th centuries, you probably see a boom time for, for cunning folk. But when there are no laws, you have to resort to your own magic or to the professionals. Fears about witches certainly crossed the Atlantic to the American colonies and evolved over generations here, just as it did in Europe. Dr. Sean McLeod is professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. I mean, what, what ended was the trials themselves, right? So witchcraft beliefs never ended. The Constitutional Convention in 1787, you have these people gathered around, um, Enlightenment thinkers, trying to come up with a rational um, document that governs um, a democratic country. So it's all about science and the Enlightenment. And then two blocks away, a woman stoned to death by a mob for being a witch. Owen Davies again. I think America is a really interesting case to study because in the popular mind in America, you know, contemporary America, you know, Salem really is the, the iconic symbol of that. Um, and also a kind of the moment when American society, in a sense, becomes enlightened. People are saying Salem never again. Uh, it's as though that that draws a line under the whole episode of witchcraft and fear of witchcraft. Of course, it's absolute nonsense. We know that there are people like cunning folk operating in the 18th and 19th century America. And I think, you know, even more fascinating is the massive growth in immigration from the mid 19th century was where you've got, you've got hundreds of thousands, millions of people coming from Europe, from rural parts of Germany and Italy and Spain and, and Britain and Ireland. And they bring all their beliefs and fears with them. So, you know, when you're looking at newspapers in America from the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s onwards, there are regular reports of people beating up people for suspected witchcraft, of accusing them, of people being made outcasts in their village, being stoned. So to me, it's, it's the, the witch is a really important, and witchcraft is really important to study because I, th I think it, it's part of our future. It's, it's going to be part of our future. And how it's expressed is the fascinating thing. How will it be expressed, you know, in the 21st, 22nd century as crisis upon crisis hits mass populations? Ronald Hutton. There is a comparable case in the satanic ritual abuse scare in America and Britain in the 80s and early 90s. Although some of the most influential people involved in propagating it and making the arrests didn't have a literal belief in Satan, they had essentially the complete early modern mindset that powered the witch trials, just stripping away a literal belief in the supernatural. In other words, you thought you were hunting evil people who worshipped the devil and did evil things, uh, irrespective as to whether the devil himself had any role in it. And the result was a series of arrests and effective brainwashing of witnesses, which produced devastating results. Investigating the early modern witch trials isn't just a study of the past or a morbid fascination with human tragedy. To study history is to seek distant reflections of our present, to tease apart the larger trends in human behavior 
in order to avert its most devastating effects. By holding up this mirror to the past, we endeavor to honestly assess the horrors along with the triumphs. Today, groups like the United Nations and Human Rights Watch have raised alarms about the killing and exile of people accused of witchcraft in parts of Africa, Southeast Asia, South America, and the Middle East. The thing that ties these accusations of witchcraft together is not superstition or magical beliefs, because truly, these exist all over the world, but it's the lingering and devastating effects of colonialism. In a hyper-secular and hyper-rationalist society, it's all too easy to write off magical beliefs as the problem and not the global inequities exacerbated by centuries-old histories of enslavement and exploitation. One way to counteract implicit biases against magical beliefs is to reframe how we understand magical thinking in its entirety and to start by viewing it honestly in our own communities rather than shunning it outright. If we endeavor the radical act of elevating magical practices alongside art, music, literature, and dance as one of the many amazing creations of human society, we stand a chance of countering our own implicit biases. Marion Gibson continues. Witchcraft was always seen as being in the past something believed in by people who are backward looking um, and superstitious and something to be left behind. But funnily enough, it still continued to be believed in. It takes a long time for people to stop believing in witches. And indeed, I think we still live in quite a superstitious society. You know, lots of us consult horoscopes. We, we talk about chance or coincidence as if it were something meant quite often. And there is this sense that, that things are done for a reason. Things happen for a reason. I think we all have this narrative running in our head and it takes quite a lot to stand up against that narrative sometimes. One of the things that interests me about witchcraft belief is how far it is steady and sustained and consistent. I'm not sure it is. I think the ways that people believe in things are actually quite challengeable on a daily basis and I think they move about a lot more than we really give them credit for. And that's the same with beliefs in, in scientific things. It's the same with political views. They, they can vary day on day. They can be influenced very, very easily. So if somebody had read something about witchcraft the day before and then something happened to them, they might still choose to believe in witches. If they hadn't read anything like that for a while and they'd seen something else which talked about natural causation and how that worked in the world, well, maybe they wouldn't believe in witchcraft. So it's a long, slow process and it's a process that is very much dependent, I think, on influences and conversations and chance encounters. Dr. John Callow is visiting lecturer in history at the University of Suffolk. The witch hunters the persecutory complex, the attack on women who were independent, poor, just a little bit different, hasn't gone away. And I think we also ought to be very guarded that we live in a tension with the European Enlightenment, with reason, with science. When we abandon those things, the true demons really do come out. It's why Goya talked about the sleep of reason. It's not reason that's the problem, it's his absence.
But also, I think it's worth remembering that however the image of the witch can be reworked as a symbol of liberation, as a symbol of fun, think of Sabrina, think of Samantha and Bewitched, etc., etc., etc. We only have those freedoms and those potentials because we went through the European Enlightenment. Disbelief, it's the disenchantment that allows modern witchcraft to flourish. Misinformation is a huge problem, but it's critical to not conflate religious, spiritual, and magical beliefs with belief in misinformation. History is rich with individuals who are scientists, humanitarians, artists, and politicians who found rich and enlightening ways to balance their religious and spiritual beliefs with their practical efforts to create just, healthy, and stable societies. It's not magical beliefs that are the problem we face today. It's the belief that we are immune to bias. Because this is the most magical thinking of all. In the next episode of Familiar Shapes, we consider solutions to the social media monsters we all help feed, even if only a few of us are their creators. This is Heather Freeman. Thanks for listening. Be safe and well.